1: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Daily Brussels Playbook column, and it's a pleasure to be with you again. There's been action in Berlin and action in Brussels this week. We've started to see the beginning of the end for Angela Merkel. The end may be a few years, or a few weeks away, we don't know. But one thing is for sure, the magic spell around Merkel's invincibility has been broken, now that no one except the Greens wants to govern with her. Even Merkel admits she wants new elections. We've got a special format for the episode this week. Two feature interviews and no podcast panel. That's because we've got two great interviews in the bag with International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach and with the Deco Group's Chief Marketing and Communications Officer Stefan Hovay. It's also because I'm taking a couple of days off, so I messed up the panel's schedule. So that's a public apology to Lena Aberruse, Alva Finn and all of you. That being the case, we've got time for a quick EU WTF moment of the week from me to kick off the podcast. And that moment is the race to relocate the European Medicines Agency and the European Banking Authority out of London in 2019. On the upside for the EU, they managed to create a suspenseful event, one that showed everyone it is more organised than the UK when it comes to Brexit planning. On the downside, in selecting Amsterdam and Paris as the new homes of the agencies, via tiebreakers, where the winning cities literally had their names drawn out of a hat to end a months-long bidding process, it introduced a slightly farcical element to that process, as if the EU agencies were a prize to be given away at a church raffle. And while the result was sad for early favourites Milan and Frankfurt, it was a doubly cruel blow for Ireland. Dublin lost the banking tiebreak and the Rugby World Cup this week to France. But first, we're going to switch to Andrew Gray and Florian Ader, who walk us through all of the complications and the twists and turns around Angela Merkel's coalition-building efforts in Germany.
2: Thanks, Ryan. As you mentioned, I'm here with Florian Ader, Politico's managing editor for Expansion. And we're going to recap on a dramatic few days in German politics. Um, Florian, maybe you can just start by um, explaining what happened on Sunday night. Well, what
3: happened, actually, is that the FDP, the Liberal Party, walked away from the table after... Long weeks of uh, so-called exploratory talks Um, at the end they concluded that it wasn't good enough for them but was on the table um, and they said they would have had to compromise too much for uh, for a party and that was of course difficult for a party that was just re-elected this time uh, into the Bundestag the German parliament so uh, they had a lot to lose and they actually didn't want to lose a lot
2: so that would have been a coalition with the Christian Democrats the Christian Social Union uh, the Bavarian Party, the sister party to Angela Merkel's party, plus the Greens, uh, plus the FDP. So, if that's off the table, uh, there has been some talk about possible revival of the Grand Coalition with the Social Democrats, together with uh, Merkel's Conservatives. What have the SPD been saying about that, and how do you think that's going to end up?
3: I mean, there's three options basically. One is the, the Grosser Coalition, the Grand Coalition, as you say, the other one is a minority government. And the third one is fresh elections, um, which is not so easy under the German constitution. So uh, the German president, frank walter Steinmeier, has called everybody to please sit down and try to find find a solution. Uh, So the the parties in the newly elected Bundestag, he wants to avoid fresh elections. That makes at least the attempt of Angela Merkel to offer the Social Democrats uh, talks about a possible coalition the most likely option at the moment, because uh, Christian Lindner just again ruled out that he would ever come back to that table. With the Greens, there's no majority. Uh, so, a a coalition. It is Martin Schulz, the party leader, had excluded a, a grand coalition right after uh, his dramatic result um, came out on September twenty-four, and he has repeated it, and the whole the party leadership has repeated that there will not be a grand coalition on on Monday only. But I think things are a little bit, in, you know, uh, are shaking up at the moment after Steinmeier's call. There are uh, there's a growing a number of voices within the party in the SPD that is actually would be open for at least sitting down at the table and see if, if something can be done uh, so it's not it's not decided that it's not over yet
2: and in terms of what this could mean for Europe if you look at what look like the two most likely scenarios right now which are either a new election or a grand coalition what would each of those mean um, in terms of what happens in this place what happens in Brussels
3: I mean, already now, it's like Günter Oettinger, the German commissioner, said already now you can perceive that the German influence is uh, not as strong as it used to be. Not because Germany lost out in the votes for the agencies on, on Monday that are, they have to relocate from London, but there is nobody in Germany who can give an answer uh, to Emmanuel Macron and his plans, uh, give a positive answer, or even no one who can say, not so fast, uh, not with us, this is Germany. Uh, we need to talk about these. There's just, you know, no response at all at the moment, and that is not good. Um, that is at least the fear the mm. in Germany. A grand coalition is probably the option that Europe would love most uh, because they know all the actors. They know Martin Schulz. Uh, they've known, you know, they know all the acting ministers. The care in the, in the caretaker government. That is still a, a grand coalition. They know that it works well.
2: Would it be good for Emmanuel Macron as well? Preferable to having the FDP in, in government in Berlin?
3: It was probably a little bit over. Overdone that presumed quote uh, of Macron's that that he'll be dead when when Merkel has a coalition, uh, has a coalition, with, the coalition with the FDP. Yeah. Uh, as I said before in the in the talks, they weren't that you know they were not blocking everything. They were just a little bit more sceptical about uh, government spending than other people in in politics, which is why uh, an SPD uh, the SPD being part of government would of course be something that uh, they would love in Paris, in particular because uh, Martin Schulz as much as he could have in the in the election campaign, but at the end he was very, you know, pro-European. So we need mm-hmm. to strengthen the German contribution to the uh, the European budget. We also need to strengthen the rule of law mechanism. We, uh, all, all the kind of things that Macron also had proposed, and he will probably be more open or you know, more open than the FDP. in any case, to a reform of the Eurozone along the lines of Macron's proposals.
2: Great. Florian, uh, thanks very much. I gather you've got to to dash off to a fancy event, but thanks for your time, and it's back to Roy.
1: And now we're going to hear from Stefan Hove from the ADECO Group. He's had a really interesting journey in his life, where he started off as a mechanic, an apprentice, and now he's gone on to the board of a Fortune 500 company, one of the world's biggest labor force companies that really works not only to match people to jobs, but now he tells us to act as a career coach to millions. So joining me on the podcast this week is Stefan Hoveg, who's the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for ADECO Group. And he's joining for the very good reason that it's EU Skills Week, and he's one of the ambassadors for that project. So welcome to the podcast, Stefan.
4: Ryan, thank you for having me here.
1: It's a pleasure. Now. Tell us a little bit about why you became an ambassador and a bit about your journey from starting your career as an apprentice to becoming a senior executive now at a Fortune 500 company.
4: I think the the initiative the EU has taken with that week is very important for two reasons. One is to share best practices and two, to promote vocational training across Europe. I believe that with the shifts we are seeing, In the workforce, and we may come back to that point, vocational training is really one, and if not to say the most important one, to address all those shifts in a great way. The main reason why I have chosen to become a mechanic, a polymechanic, was I like to do what I did back then, and I followed just my heart in proceeding, working on motorcycles, going into mechanics and that was probably looking backwards one of the main reasons why I've entered the vocational training.
1: And vocational training has a very mixed reputation you know as an outsider I look at the European university system and I see some great value in it and I also see it as not a lot of great value and I compare it to my own experience Mm -hmm. in Australia where there is a premium on vocational education and training and my brother went through that system and he's basically more than me, my entire career, let's say. And here in Europe, it seems to be a little bit like the US, where people are kind of pushed towards a university education and and vocational training is kind of seen somehow as the thing that you do if you don't get into university. Mm. What's your experience of that? And, And what can we do to change that reputation?
4: I think it hasn't been that pronounced. I grew up on the countryside. I think it's also interesting to see how the reputation works on a countryside vis-a-vis living in a city. I'm living now since 25 years in the city center of Zurich. I think the reputation is different. If I look now to my two daughters I have and how the pressure has increased to go to university, I think the trend goes into the wrong direction, clearly. I see a lot of parents already early on at the school pushing teachers, asking teachers questions towards, does that really prepare my son or my daughter to go to university? Instead of asking as a parent and also as a society, what makes people happy and what do they love to do? And then help them to get into those jobs.
1: And what does a society need? I mean, if you, there is nobody that right. can fix a car mend the toilet or anything like that, then you end up in all those really difficult migration Mm -hmm. questions Mm -hmm. because somebody needs to do those jobs. And if your own families don't want to do them, then...
4: I'm totally with you, but I think it's even before that functional question, what do we need as a society to function well and to have high employment rates, which literally leads to if you have a dual education system? I really ask myself, in the past, we have been learning something, then we have been working, and then we went on to retirement. And I strongly believe that that model has gone for a long time. Uh, My children, they have a life expectation of 100 years. They better ask themselves early on, what do they love to do? So I really don't understand any parents, why they don't nurture their children in what they like to do. Instead of pushing them into or socializing them into a role, they may hate for the next 50
1: years. Mm -hmm. Now, we might move in a second into sort of the ways the economy Mm -hmm. is changing, but are there any countries or systems in Europe that you think others should? copy when it comes to this mm-hmm. more vocational skills mm-hmm. agenda. We hear a lot mm-hmm. about Germany's apprenticeship mm-hmm. system. I think that's mm-hmm. quite similar to Switzerland's. But are there others or are there are specific things from that mm-hmm. system that mm-hmm. you really want mm-hmm. our listeners to, to, to highlight. know
4: about? So of course you have Germany, you have Switzerland, you named Australia, you have Finland, Sweden. They have built over decades a good dual education system. And I think you cannot copy paste that overnight. I think what you can do and that's where the shift in the workforce plays into nowadays is that you can make a lifelong learning experience as part of any work experience. When you stop with those shifts in learning, growing, I think the the divide between those who take part of the workforce and those who are excluded of the workforce will kind of get bigger and bigger. So I wouldn't name any specific, but really enforce and endorse the need of a lifelong learning system. And one of the reasons
1: for that is we're getting into a much more complex work mm-hmm. environment now mm-hmm. where people go in and out of different jobs. Mm-hmm. They're often now working in an independent way rather than just in two or three or mm-hmm. four jobs throughout their career. They've got different family responsibilities. We split it all up differently now, so it's, mm-hmm. it's more complicated. So, as we go into to talk about that, maybe, can you explain a little bit more about a Deco group and what it does? Mm-hmm. So, describe yourself as a workforce solutions provider. Is that another way of saying you match people and jobs together, or are you, are you doing something a bit more complicated than that?
4: The jobs you will do during your lifetime will be not the one you have learned, then you went into the job, you have stayed for 30 years, and then you go into retirement if the life expectancy is 100 years you will work more than 50 years probably even more than 50 years where we see our role is to a be there when you need us to advise you on the skills that we see yeah digitization has become the driving force in the changing world of work how can we help you to cope to learn and to stay as part of the workforce now, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. While we look on the company side, what are the needs our clients need? Is it flexibility? Is it workforce solutions, i.e. technology? What do they need in that workforce transformation we are in as a society, but all the big companies every day?
1: Mm -hmm. And you worked with LinkedIn to put out Mm -hmm. a report this Mm -hmm. month And that was looking into the gig economy, you know, the rise of the independent Mm -hmm. professional, some people might call them freelancers, Mm -hmm. you know, that general environment where you're not Mm -hmm. working in these permanent jobs. And I thought it was really interesting that more people said that they do these gig work, these gig jobs, Mm -hmm. as kind of a lifestyle or a career choice, Mm -hmm. rather than because they couldn't find Mm -hmm. a more Mm -hmm. permanent job. Were you surprised by that finding or is that consistent with what you deal with on a daily basis?
4: I was surprised with the high number of respondents who said, I do that because I really like to do it on the one hand. On the other hand, if I look to the Gen Y and all the research around Gen Y, it clearly teaches us that a purpose-driven job and the job where you say, I do that now for a while and then I do something else, seems to be the fil rouge through that generation. So as a mirror of that generation, I'm not surprised actually. Technology today really allows you to be remote, to work from wherever you feel it's comfortable for you. And that's why we see in the US with those huge distances Mm -hmm. that especially in that country, the gig economy or the freelance has taken off. We're currently saying it's 30% of the workforce Mm -hmm. who works freelance, part-time, remote. And I think those factors of a generation who um, asks much more, what do I do? Why do I do what I do? And when would I like to do that, what I do? Combined with, let's do that from a nice island. Let's do that from home. Let's Mm -hmm. do that from the garden. I really think Mm -hmm. that's something which my generation hasn't experienced that much. I still ask myself when I go with the team for a walk now that we, our headquarters is located at the lakeside, for a walk instead of sitting in a meeting room, I still ask myself, is that really work, what I'm doing here? Yes or no? Yeah, you feel a kind of
1: guilt. Yeah, so There I, I is
4: like that notion yeah. of, is that really work?
1: But I'll give you an example. It is. So I, was, <laughs> I found myself in Lisbon a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. early for a conference. Mm-hmm. I had mistaken mm-hmm. the program. And so I, I essentially just had uh, the morning and part of the afternoon mm-hmm. off. Well, not off, but I, I thought, okay, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to go and sit in a nice cafe, and I'll just check my emails. But you know, be a little bit checked out of work. And actually, it was putting myself in that different environment mm-hmm. that led me to write my most creative story in at least the last couple of months. Okay. And if I had just been sitting at my cubicle, I wouldn't have achieved mm-hmm. that creative output mm-hmm. for sure. And you know, I think that's a sign. Sort of those experiences mm-hmm. teach you that it's the outcome that matters more yep. than. Everyone, then where you do a it, rigid exactly, system.
4: exactly. Whether you measure the time, and that's, I think, if early on you ask a question on best practices and examples, I think I really think it's helping youngsters, but also the mature workforce. And I think that's the forgotten workforce nobody really thinks about. Not because I'm turning 53, but I really believe that's an important part of our workforce, and we need to discuss how we can educate them and help them in that transition. I really think that that helping hand in guiding you to the place where you like to work mm-hmm. and allowing that will lead to much better outcomes at the end. Then a career of now, I enter a company, a corporation, and I stay there for 30 years. I get my career handbook like it was in the past with big corporations. And I know in 20 years where I will end up. I think that time has really gone and we need to nurture the needs of that new generation, but also the needs of the workforce transformation we're seeing at the same time.
1: And what could we do to streamline or harmonize or abolish some of the restrictions that exist for employment in Europe? I mean, if we look at something like France, where there is a fairly rigid, or there was at least until September, very rigid Mm -hmm. sort of labor code. I can't imagine it being very politically popular to just say, Mm. hey, we're gonna let everyone work wherever they want and you'll just need to get a new job every two years. Like there'll be structural and political barriers to Mm. having people accept that way of the world. But there must surely also be things that you see, patterns across Europe where you think, hang on, if we just got rid of this, there'd be a lot better outcomes for more people.
4: I have big hopes into the labor market reforms of of Emmanuel Macron I think he has done with his team a phenomenal job. We see that the French seem to realize that it needs some fundamental reforms in order to create a more fluid workforce, a more fluid labor market. Generally speaking, what labor markets should do in order to nurture new jobs, a more fluid work environment, I think Switzerland is a really good example. I think in our times now, flexibility is an important concept where we have the flexibility, which is needed in a very volatile market environment. We see that since 10 years almost, since the financial crisis, the volatility in the system won't fade away. So companies need flexibility. On the other hand, we have new generation who who work differently than we have been educated and work. So I think also the, the flexibility is important. At the same time, security, I think, is is something which you, myself, are looking for. You need to have a certain security in order to plan, in order to have a family or with friends. Also or to save the state money in the end. If you exactly. don't save a
1: pension for yourself, in the end, you're a burden.
4: Yeah, I think we are at the crossroad where education, lifelong learning, learning new skills is absolutely key. If I look to all the research with the workforce transformation, I would put them into two camps. One camp kind of paints the devil to the wall, like we say in Germany, like all the jobs are disappearing and we will see massive layoffs. And then there is another camp which I'm kind of part of. I believe that, yes, we are in a structural change process. Yes, there will be jobs fading away. And we see that like in the past, but I see gazillions m- of opportunities emerging, but only if we manage in that transition to get the people on board, meaning to train and educate them, to give them education, not only once, but during their whole life cycle so that their career becomes more a
1: patchwork than just a linear progression. And then, you know, as long as you're moving, it can be progression. Just maybe not in a a straight line. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe that brings us back to where we began this conversation. So, obviously, change needs to happen to make sure everybody would have opportunities like that. Where does the responsibility lie for making the change happen? The EU doesn't Mm -hmm. have an awful lot of legal powers when it comes to Mm -hmm. education. And it's also the furthest away from Mm -hmm. sort of the the parts of life that matter Mm -hmm. most to people, like the family. So... Mm -hmm. From the parents through to the EU, who needs to change in order to make this happen?
4: I think it's three parties. First and foremost, it starts with you yourself. I'm a strong believer that I think it starts with you as an individual to realize education is key. Not only once in a life, but through in your whole life. It starts with you to find out what you want to do in life. And you can start anywhere. I think that's the beauty of, if I look back 30 years, where my professional career started, um, I followed kind of what I like to do. Now, I'm very privileged to be grown up in Switzerland. I'm fully aware of that. Then I think it starts with the companies. I think companies are playing a key role in that equation, too, in order to give people a chance to work part-time, to educate to have apprentice within your company and then I think it's uh, the governments the institutions who need to play their role nationally and supranationally. I think on a national level it's how you make and adjust the education with the needs in the labor market, the regulatory framework and the legal framework you're setting because I think that's also absolutely key that you have companies coming investing, and creating new jobs. And then as a EU, I think it's that notion where we started on the reputation side. I really think it is key to position not one vis-a-vis the other, but to promote and to encourage individuals to find what they love to do and to help them to get into what they love to do, because that will help society at large.
1: Well, I love doing this podcast. I've loved having you on, Stefan Hovig. Thank you for joining us on The Confidential. Thank you, Ryan. You were listening to Stefan Hovig from ADECO Group. And now it's time to hear from Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee. I caught up with Mr. Bach in the headquarters of the Council of the European Union. That's in the Justice Lipsius building here in Brussels. And he was here on Tuesday in Brussels to be the first-ever IOC president to address sports ministers. He had a range of reasons to be in Brussels. He's worried that competition regulators are making strict economic interpretations of how a big but non-profit organization like the IOC and its affiliates operate. And they want to work also with the EU to help sport increase social inclusion and active citizenship. And in the interview, he also previews what to expect from the IOC's anti-doping investigation into Russia. That's a clear example of systemic doping and where sports and politics are inseparable. Thomas Buck, welcome to EU Confidential. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I have to say, as president of the International Olympic Committee, you are a figure and an organization that has kind of been in my life for a very long time because I used to be a competitive swimmer and I used to set my alarm clock to watch the Olympics nonstop, regardless of where it was in the world when I was growing up. Uh, so welcome to Brussels. Thank you very much. A pleasure, a pleasure being here
5: and uh, being uh, with an athlete. Well,
1: uh, not, not like you. you. You went to the Olympics. You, you're a yeah, real athlete. Yeah, I was uh, a pretend uh, athlete.
5: Still, you know, this is no, no, not a pretender. If uh, you, you did uh, marathon, free water swimming, this is one of the most uh, challenging sports uh, you can do.
1: And you came into the Olympic movement via fencing. Is that right?
5: That's right. As a fencer at my time, and then uh, with the uh, Olympic Games and... Seventy six, a couple of years ago. And they're uh, winning the gold medal with our team and this is how it started.
1: Very good indeed. Now, one of the things that's always impressed me about the International Olympic Committee is it's a global organisation that people can understand. You know, they can identify with the Olympics. They know what it stands for, what the value system is. And organisations like even the EU have really struggled to connect with people. What is your approach to the presidency? How are you sort of communicating the messages of sport or what are the messages beyond sport that you're trying to bring to the world at the moment?
5: I think the most important uh, thing, and this is my approach to the presidency, is is twofold. On on the one hand, uh, it was about reforming the Olympic Games, uh, the Olympic movement with uh, wide ranging reforms based on three pillars and these are sustainability, credibility and youth. And the second line is that within all these reforms and whatever we do, the athletes have to be at uh, the center because the Olympic movement in the end is about the athletes.
1: A lot of people listening might say, well, what's the EU got to do with sport? We get why you have something to do with sport. But the EU has started to do things like create a sports plan now. It's tried to use sport as a way to develop people's sense of their citizenship and, you know, keeping them as healthy people as well. So are you connecting with organizations like the EU to spread that sort of message and agenda?
5: Uh, Definitely, yes. And this is why I'm here in Brussels in a so-called structured dialogue uh, Mm -hmm. there uh, with uh, the council to uh, discuss, among other topics, these grassroots programs, which uh, have been started by Commissioner Mm Navracic And I think it's a very good initiative, because sport can contribute uh, to a society in many different ways. If you look uh, then at uh, initiatives where you bring people of different backgrounds together, Mm -hmm. be it on a social level, uh, be it on on an ethnic level, where You can see and feel the power of sport to to unify people. It relates to programs which uh, the the IOC, uh, we are very much engaged with regard to to refugees. Mm -hmm. For example, in in the discussions we will have, uh, I will mention a a program the EU is going to undertake against... uh, uh, youth uh, unemployment, uh, mm-hmm. which is one of the major challenges in, in the EU.
1: One other element I wanted to ask you about is the volunteer aspect of the Olympic movement, because you are a non-profit organization, and so you obviously rely a lot on volunteers. But I uh, have the sense that that might be clashing a little bit with some other parts of the EU system uh, in the competition department, where they are, you know, they really look at things sometimes from a very orthodox economic Perspective, not sort of a broader social perspective sometimes. Have you got any messages that you're trying to deliver about how sport should be left alone to govern itself
5: or, or anything like that? Uh, definitely, yes, because the sports movement is a social movement. We are not a business, and the European sports model is uh, based uh, on uh, volunteers. It's based on, on social in- engagement of millions of people across uh, Europe. And there, you you cannot look at this social movement from a mere economic or competition or business point of view.
1: And is there a specific case where the EU competition department is trying to classify you as a purely commercial company or equate you to the professional sports organization? I
5: I would not like uh, to enter there into uh, specific cases, uh, Mm -hmm. but we see some inquiries going on where uh, this uh, risk is very high and where we Mm -hmm. can see that in fact, there this department is looking at at, uh, at sport only under the economic, under the the money point Mm -hmm. of uh, view.
1: So I guess they might be looking at the front end of how much money does go into the television sponsorship deals and the, the, you know, the, the summit of the summer and the winter Olympics. Yeah. But, um, there is, but I guess you're saying there's another element that yeah, yeah, of what you're paying yeah, back into yeah. the community. They're
5: neglecting that all this is based on a non-for-profit organization. Let's take the, the IOC as an example.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: We are giving back uh, to sports, mm-hmm. including the uh, National Olympic Committees in Europe, and athletes in Europe, ninety percent of all of our revenues.
1: So that's in the billions, so
5: that, essentially. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, three million euros per day in a year. Yeah. Huh? With this investment, well, there we are. We are growing the athletes. Uh, we are allowing the uh, national Olympic uh, committees to take care of uh, their athletes and this is going down then uh, the the members of the national Mm -hmm. olympic committees are again volunteer organizations and the members of the national federations are again volunteers it's going down to the grassroots so you you cannot look at the sports movement as you would uh, look at uh, a manufacturer of cars or a producer of low-fat milk Mm -hmm.
1: Sports organisations are often quite unique. And we yeah. saw with, for example, FIFA and some of the, the more recent scandals there, where the dividing lines between what is some kind of criminal or illegal activity and what is something that you can self-regulate within a community, they're sometimes not always clear. And I wonder whether the o- Olympic example there is anti-doping efforts, where, you know, sometimes that stuff is not illegal, you know, they're not illegal products, but they're obviously contrary to the your movements, interests and rules. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it can be illegal depending on how those people mm-hmm. behave. So what, what are your views on that autonomy of sport issue and, and where are you going with the anti-doping efforts?
5: Okay. With regard to autonomy, we need autonomy. Uh, otherwise, uh, there is uh, no international sports. If uh, international sports organizations uh, cannot set the rules, which are applied everywhere. If the penalty kick is 11 meters uh, all over the world, uh, then you can play football together. If you play by different rules, it doesn't work Mm -hmm. uh, anymore. So the international sports organizations need to have this autonomy to set the rules for their match and uh, then to to supervise the the implementation of these rules. But we are always uh, speaking in, in the IOC about responsible autonomy. Mm-hmm. And that means that good governance is uh, only the other side of the coin. Autonomy uh, must be uh, deserved. It, it cannot be uh, used to do uh, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It has to be uh, exercised uh, in respecting the rules of good governance. Mm-hmm. So this is why we say the one does not go without the other And this is what we are calling a responsible autonomy. And there, in the IOC, uh, we have been undertaking a whole uh, series of uh, reforms in this uh, respect, you know, having our accounts being audited Mm -hmm. according to IFRS uh, standards, which we would not need to do according to law. It's going far beyond uh, the the legal uh, requirements.
1: You don't have any offshore accounts? just checking on that Uh, (laughs) you might you
5: might you might be in trouble (laughs) if they pop up somewhere (laughs) Uh, no 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 uh, we are not in paradise Uh, (laughs) no organization is uh, immune there to any illegal actions to corruption whatever we did what we could do Mm -hmm. and we have the tools in place for prevention and if prevention fails then also to to sanction and this is uh, then uh, what uh, what we are doing Mm -hmm.
1: that maybe brings us to russia and the anti-doping case i mean i guess as well that shows how sport and politics are never completely separate
5: first of all the 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 principle you know sport uh, is not isolated from politics and This, uh, you know, was was never true. I I remember the times when I was growing up in sports, and then uh, sports leaders would tell you sport has nothing to do with money or politics. Mm -hmm. Both is a lie. Mm -hmm. Everything in in, in life is politics. We have uh, to be politically strictly neutral. But we are not apolitical. It is to recognize that this world is run by politics and not by sports Mm -hmm. so you have to find a partnership with the politics respecting each other's remits we are acknowledging this fact that the world is run by politics Mm -hmm. and we are expecting from politics that they respect our responsible uh, autonomy
2: Mm -hmm.
5: with regard to Russia we uh, have uh, now come to to a stage where uh, after uh, two uh, IOC uh, commissions, and uh, in particular the one uh, headed uh, by the former president of uh, Switzerland, are addressing the, uh, obviously, a systematic manipulation of uh, the anti-doping uh, system in uh, Russia. And uh, we will see the conclusions in the next uh, couple of uh, weeks. Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think it reached into the state or was it privately systematic?
5: I I don't know whether this uh, would be the difference, whether it's state or privately. I I guess both the civil organizations and uh, maybe uh, government uh, organizations or people within these organizations have been involved. But how far it goes, I don't know. This is up to the commission. Mm Then uh, these uh, commissions, they did what had to be done, is uh, respecting a due process and respecting the rule of law. That means they offered uh, hearings to uh, the Russian uh, side, mm-hmm. and now they are putting their reports uh, together. And then, I, I guess, on the 5th of uh, December, uh, in the IOC Executive Board, uh, we can take a decision.
1: And. Moving on to the recent 2024-2028 Summer Olympic bid decisions, you, know, you kind of narrowed it down to who could really do it, and then got them to almost sit in a room together and figure out, okay, Paris is doing it this year, LA is going to do it this year. And they're both the historic Olympic cities, so they've both held the Games twice before. How are you feeling about that whole process, and, and is that the new way that things are going to work for the bids in the future?
5: Uh, it will not come as a surprise to you that I'm very happy with, <laughs> <laughs> with this procedure. and, and uh, These uh, two cities offered uh, extremely sustainable projects uh, for the organization of uh, the Games. In Paris, we will have 93% of all the facilities either already being existing or temporary mm-hmm. uh, ones. In uh, Los Angeles, this figure is going up to 97%. uh,
1: Are we going to see the Coliseum for a third time? Yes.
5: The investment for infrastructure is uh, going significantly down. And on the other hand, the use of these facilities Mm -hmm. uh, after the games is is guaranteed because they're already Already in use use now. Mm -hmm. And the other reason was uh, that uh, we wanted... uh, with the uh, uh, Olympic Agenda 2020 to, to streamline the candidature procedure mm-hmm. and uh, to make it uh, less onerous, uh, to make it uh, less uh, uh, costly, to uh, uh, apply uh, even higher standards of, uh, of good governance uh, with it. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, this uh, situation was uh, maybe an, an ideal Moment uh, to make uh, these uh, reforms coming uh, to life uh, not only for one edition of the games uh, mm-hmm. but uh, for 11 years. And now you can us
1: breathe in some sense. Exactly. Everyone has a few more years to gather their plans. You can focus on delivering instead of permanently touring cities and checking them out. E- so.
5: Exactly. And it gives us uh, the maybe most valuable currency of our time, its stability. Mm
0: -hmm.
5: Because uh, who in this fragile world, in this world changing faster than ever before, who can plan for the next 11 years?
1: China. And can we get one day to a point where you could imagine 2032, 2036, an African Summer Olympics, 60% of the population in some African countries are under 25. And they've never had the games before.
5: Definitely yes. To be frank, I would have uh, loved uh, to see uh, an African uh, city being candidate uh, for for 2024. Mm-hmm. But uh, this, uh, for, for different uh, reasons, did not uh, materialise uh, there. But therefore, uh, uh, then for uh, 32 and 36, I, I hope very much uh, that we can have. Uh, a candidate uh, from uh, africa because uh, uh, africa is uh, producing excellent athletes uh, but and it is uh, the last uh, white spot uh, there on our on our global map uh, with regard to the organization
1: don't give up on antarctica <laughs> there would be a great winter olympics if <laughs> if climate change really comes to hit us you might be forced down there in in 50 years but Mr. Bach, thank you for joining us on the EU Confidential podcast.
5: Thank you. Great pleasure.
1: You are listening to Thomas Bach of the International Olympic Committee. And that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. So thank you for listening once again. And remember, if you've got the chance, please review, rate or subscribe to the podcast so you can make your experience even easier and we can help spread the word about why this is a fun podcast to be listening to each week. Once again, podcasting is a team effort. So a big thank you to Rosie Belson, Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin.